MSW Media. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. Well, this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Oh, yeah. All right, all right, all right. That's right, Matthew. I know it. He loves this show, too. I am Dan Dunn, and we are at the Townhouse in Venice, California, and what we're drinking this episode are some Prohibition-era cocktails. I'm going to tell you why we're doing that in just a few minutes. Also, in a little bit, I'm going to be speaking with Jay Troth. He is the founder of License to Distill. It is the number one craft cocktail uh, Instagram account in the universe, and we're going to find out how he made that happen, and we're going to talk some uh, other stuff with him. Um, we might even have Dorian Bay, the head bartender from the townhouse, come on and join us. Dorian was kind enough to make me the drink that I'm having right now, uh, which is a Sazerac made with Rittenhouse rye. And let me just get off of here. Mm. Oh, I love it. Um, okay, so let's get to some business out of the way here. First, I got a, an Instagram message, and, and I, as I always encourage you, to hit me up on the Instagram, it's at the imbiber, T-H-E-I-M-B-I-B-E-R, imbibe means to drink. Uh, I got an Instagram message from N-M-N Sills, who wrote, remember Tequiza? Is that the worst name ever for a drink or what? Okay, first off, yes, I remember Tequiza. It was a tequila-flavored beer from Anheuser-Busch that they stopped making about 10 years ago for obvious reasons tequila-flavored beer. Is tequiza the worst name ever for drinks? You're right, MN Sills. You got to change that Instagram. It's hard to say. MN Sills. You are right. Tequiza is a great name for an international pop star or an NFL running back. It is a lousy name for a beer. That said, tequiza doesn't even crack the top 10 worst booze brand names of all time. I know this because I made a list. And here it is. And keep in mind, these are real names of adult beverages that actually exist or did at one point. Are you guys ready for this list? It's so great having this soundboard, man. I'm like a <laughs> child right now. Uh, so here we go. The number one, number 10. Wodka, vodka. Wodka vodka. Is it me or does this sound like something marketed to preschoolers? Like when I envision the vodka vodka distillery, I see Oompa Loompas and golden tickets and children getting DUIs on tricycles. It's terrible. Okay, number nine. Bishop's Finger Beer from the makers of Wodka Vodka. No, uh, not really, but the name certainly conjures rather disturbing images. Bishop's Finger Beer. And by the way, the Vatican denies this beer ever happened. Okay. Uh, next up, number eight, we got dry sack. Is this a sherry or a condition for which I might need to see a dermatologist? I don't know. Dry sack comes in at number eight. At number seven, Ivana Bitch tobacco flavored vodka. You heard me right. Ivana Bitch tobacco flavored vodka. 
look, when the fact that your vodka tastes like an ashtray isn't the most repulsive thing about it, well, then you've taken bad taste to a whole new level. And speaking of bad taste, Trump vodka. Speaking of which, number one tequila. That's J-U-A-N, number one tequila. So you remember the time Dave and Buster's got in hot water because they tweeted out, I hate tacos, said no one ever? Well, I remember that, which is why we're moving on to number four, Big Black Dick Rum. (laughs) Big Black Dick Rum. From the hilarious people who brought you Insecurity Cologne and Please Make the Bad Feelings Go Away beer. Number three, Siemens Shot. That's Siemens Shot. And no one ever went broke, underestimating the maturity of the booze market. Number two, Balls Vodka. It's called Balls Vodka. Have you had enough cheap sexual innuendo yet? Oh, wait, that isn't even innuendo. And the number one worst booze brand name of all time, Flicker Bean Coffee-Infused Whiskey. First off, what in the actual fuck? And secondly... How soon before this becomes the official coffee-infused whiskey of the Trump White House? All right. Here we go. You know what I should have done there when I said, let me do that joke again. How long before that becomes the official drink of the Trump White House? There. See, it hits better when you do that. Okay. So as I want to do in the beginning of the show, I, I, as a segment we call Stuff I'm Digging, these are alcoholic products that are sent to me by booze brands to sample and write about and talk about on this show. I want you to know nobody's paying me to endorse these products right here. I do get the samples for free, but hey, what the fuck? I'm not buying it. All right. So this is the standout stuff. It's only the standout stuff. And I'm going to make this quick because we have a packed show today. So... Uh, uh, I don't, uh, as I'm sure you're probably aware, National Tequila Day is coming up on Wednesday, July 24th. I don't know what your plans are. I'm sure it's big, taking the family somewhere. Um, so uh, for National Tequila Day, I'm going to throw out a tequila that's a little bit different. It's called Session, Session Mocha. Uh, and this was a tequila that was launched in Australia in 2015, but that doesn't count because it's too far away. It got here just a few months ago, and this Session Mocha as the name implies, is a mocha-flavored tequila. Now, before you go, whoa, wait, 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 wait. It was a gold medal winner at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, which is the most prestigious competition. It's a blind tasting. Uh, they let me judge there so that, you know, it's quality. Um, but it's this, it's a really smooth, well-balanced coffee flavor spirit. And that's not a small feat because most in that, those kind of categories, when you get it, they tend to yield a lot more misses than hits. But with Session Mocha, there's no cloying sweetness, no unpleasant artificiality to it. It's a, an oleo of seductive flavors. And I would say it's punctuated with rich dark chocolate. There's some smoky roasted agave notes. And it's $43 a bottle. Again, an ideal nip for kicking off National Tequila Day. Uh, and then if you're not a tequila drinker and you want to go a little bit lighter, another one I had. Here we go. I'm going old school right now. Martini and Rossi. Sparkling rosé. That's right. Martini and Rossi. It's my Russian-infused Italian accent. Martini and Rossi have been around a long time. You've heard of them. I've heard of them. The biggest problem I have with sparkling rosé is that it's too damn sweet. Um, this one, however, is dry, really dry. It's kind of great, like a sort of an alfresco dinner situation. It, it's got a little finesse. Finesse. 
And this is for $15 a bottle. We've got the crisp bubbles. There's a little bit of elegance, some fresh berries, a little touch of pepper, just a touch, a scooch. I think it'd be great with a lobster roll, grilled chicken, or you can pour it over somebody's body that you love and sip it that way. Uh, so there you go. That is the stuff that I am digging this week. Hey, this is Oliver Cooper, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the show where people like me drink stuff with your host, Dan Dunn. That was actor Oliver Cooper. We all love him. We love him. Red Oaks, Project X, Californication. He was on a recent episode of the show. You can go back and find it in the archives. Probably have those. Hello, who's there? Somebody's banging on the walls here at the townhouse. This is probably a ghost. This place is old, and we're going to get into that in a second. In fact, let's get into it right now. So I was born and raised in Philadelphia, but for the better part of two decades, I've lived within shouting distance of where we are right now in Venice Beach, California. And I know this because there are certifiably crazy people on Venice Beach who feel the need to shout things at all hours of the day and night. So despite the continued presence of this highly vocal demographic, this neighborhood has gone through some pretty radical changes over the years. It was this Oceanside playground to low-rent Bohemian outpost to the slum by the sea. And finally, over the last 10 to 15 years, it's become one of America's ritziest neighborhoods. But no matter how much this place changes, there's always been the place where I'm at right now, Townhouse. And it's located on Windward Avenue beneath the beaming bolts of that famed Venice sign you always see, the Venice sign. That's where we are right there. And this is the oldest continuously operating bar in Los Angeles. It has taken every punch the 20th century could throw at it. A prohibition, a Great Depression, a couple world wars, Mick Jagger's solo career, and it has stayed on its feet. In 1915, the place opened as Minotti's Buffet, which was an elegant saloon with these gorgeous mahogany bars that ran along both sides of the room. And then 1920, Prohibition rolled around, and the founder, Cesar Minotti, did what any upstanding business in wood, he shut down his bar and converted it into a legal business, a grocery store. Then he did what any born bar owner would do and turned the basement into an illegal speakeasy called the Del Monte that also served as a distribution point for most of the illicit booze on the west side of Los Angeles. Then from 1920 until Prohibition ended in 1933, during that time, there were boats bearing whiskey from Canada. They would arrive under cover of darkness, and they would drop their precious cargo off beneath the Abbot Kinney Pier, which was used to be outside, not there anymore. That pier's gone. And then they'd be collected, and they'd be rolled through these tunnels that were right under the beach, straight into the basement here, the Del Monte. Those tunnels were long ago filled with concrete, but you can still see the arches in the basement today. And uh, in fact, I was just looking at them earlier. So then... The mid-20th century, Venice, the whole neighborhood, and this bar went through what charitably called a rough patch. During this era, drinking at the townhouse was done at great personal risk. Your head was on a swivel. Indeed, as recently as 12 years ago, you had to have a metal token to go to the bathroom at the townhouse. Otherwise, it was too much for the bartenders to distinguish between the customers and the vagrants. Uh, then a fine, upstanding Irishman by the name of Louis Ryan took over the place in 2007. He was only the third owner in the century-plus run of this place. 
First job was to restore it to its former glory, which he did, renovating not only the interior, but also the whiskey selection, which now stands at over 400 premium bottles strong. Townhouse is one of the top three Buffalo Trace retailers in the United States, and it boasts the largest Pappy Van Winkle allocation in the country. That's right. You know you want the Pappy Van Winkle? Well, you want it, you come here, because they got it. Uh, it also sports a, a cocktail program as solid as any you'll find in L.A., <laughs> headed by the aforementioned Dorian Bay, and includes Old Fashions on tap, uh, Moscow Mules on tap, and emphasis on bourbon and scotch-based libations. And with all that said, it's time for me to shut the hell up and bring on somebody else that I can then talk to. Uh, he is, as I mentioned earlier, the, the founder of License to Distill. If you're on the Instagram, you should be on it. If you care about drinking and you're on the Instagram, go to License to Distill. It is a, as good an Instagram account as there is that doesn't have a lot of boobs in it. Well, I, I might be on it, so there's a boob someday. Uh, but anyway, I, I want you to give a warm welcome to Jabin Troth. How are you, man? Thank you. Nice to be here. Dude. Good Didn't to see well. you, man. Yeah. We, you, you got a drink in front of you as well over there. What you got going on? Old fashioned on tap. An old fashioned with. I need, one, I need a tap at my house. Oh, man. For old fashioned. With the Wyoming bourbon. I haven't even heard of that. You haven't? No. I'm, I'm They're behind, doing some great things. I'm behind the time. <laughs> Sorry. So, man, look, first of all, check this place out. So, we are in the Del Monte Speakeasy. We are in the basement. This place just feels history, right? Absolutely. The floors, the, the decor, everything. It just. Uh, Feels like you're stepping back in time. Yeah, and now you, by tell us a little bit about License to Distill and what you do, and how you get. Obviously, you get to see a lot of places. Maybe not yeah. just like this, but yeah, yeah. License to Distill is kind of a a collaboration of everything that I enjoy about this industry. Uh, cool bars, cool bartenders, great drinks. It's a culmination of of content from all over the world. So some of the best bars and bartenders that you'll find. Um, and you're, you have a heavy emphasis on, I mean, you're shooting video that looks like a John Woo movie. Really? <laughs> I, I don't mean, know. About, yeah. You know, we, we shoot a lot of content, but we also help others shoot content for, it's kind of meant for our page or earmarked for our page because obviously I can't be everywhere that I would like to shoot. Yeah. And this industry is global. There's some awesome places all over the world. So really early on in the process, I started realizing that I need to, you know, have, give some people some basic you know, tips and pointers on how to shoot the content that, that would be featured on my page because I can't just be everywhere that I well, want to be. Let me, let me take a step back. Yeah. How did the page begin? Like where, what's, when sure. did the idea hit you? Okay. So, uh, earliest, I, I guess the earliest time the idea hit was first time I ever went to a bar like the one that we're in right now. Um, noble experiment June in San of, Diego in San Diego. Yeah. yeah. June of, uh, 2011, I believe it was. My wife and I, uh, a friend of ours, made reservations for us. We went after a concert one night. Didn't really even want to go, but I think our reservations were like at midnight, and we had just gotten done with the concert, just wanted to go to bed. Yeah. And um, we show up. I, I, my buddy told me that it was difficult to get in, so I was like, we can't bail on these reservations. We walked in, and it was like, you know, I, I compared like walking to Disneyland for the first time as a kid. And by also, the way, so I've been there, and, and so yeah. Jabin will tell. So when you go into this bar, it's it's in a it's in a regular. There's a normal bar restaurant, and then there's a wall of kegs. Yeah, that's a fake wall. Yeah. So we, I, I think it was a weeknight actually that we were in there, and we show up to, you know, the the outer restaurant, and there's no one in there. It's midnight, uh, on a weeknight. There's no one in there, 
and then people are just kind of milling around, you know, employees. And we're totally out of place. Hey, uh, we're looking for some place, the Noble Experiment. Like, yeah, it's down the hall. We go down the hall. It's a wall of kegs. There's no door. I'm like, come on. What, what is the deal? They're, just push on the wall, push on the wall, and then you walk in, and it's, you know, like nothing I had seen before. Sure. You know, and so they, they get us as our two spots at the bar, and thankfully we had an amazing bartender that just took the time to walk us through the entire experience. And we went from, hey, let's have a drink and get out of here, to this is the, one of the best experiences we had ever had with cocktails. And that was probably where the seed was planted. Uh, my love for the industry, love for cocktails. No, you know. were you on Instagram at this time? No. Okay, was there Instagram at this time? There, no, I guess not, right? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I don't think there was. I think yeah. it was MySpace or something. Something, yeah, yeah, 2011. There yeah, definitely not, was not Instagram. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, fast forward to uh, about three and a half years ago. So now we're talking about you know 2016. My wife and I were on a road trip, and I told her, I said, there was some stuff going on in the industry that I was in. It was kind of falling off a little bit. And I said, you were, a, you were I was, in a porn star, right? You were a porn star? No. Oh, I thought you were a porn no, star. Sales. No. Sales. Oh, sales. Same thing. Um, yeah, we're all selling something. Yeah. I was in the apparel industry doing, <laughs> doing sales. And my wife and I were on a road trip, literally driving over the ridge route. And I said, you know, I've got to figure out what's going on in social so that if I have to do it for an upcoming job or whatever, I at least know what's going on. I had no social media at that time, you know, no Instagram, nothing. This so, is four years ago. Yeah, three and a half years ago, 2016. It's, yeah. it's incredible to think that you have gone from that to, <laughs> how do you yeah. do it? How do so, you do it? Yeah, so she, <laughs> she, she got on there and she, she started the page and, uh, and said, hey, okay, I created it. Here's the password. And when I got home from that, that road trip, I started posting things that I liked. And, uh, and was the, it called License to Distill at yeah, that point? Yeah. And this is the Instagram account? That's the Instagram account. Okay. All yeah. Right. So started making my first posts and, and then, you know, um, I think we kind of tapped into some things that were not really seen a lot on, on social media. Video was still fairly new for Instagram, believe it or not. At that time, they only allowed 15 seconds of video, yeah. not, not a minute. And there was a lot of great cocktail accounts that were showing pictures, but a lot less video. So I started looking for videos even outside of, of in Instagram, you know, on, on the internet that I could bring in and show on my Instagram page. And essentially create a platform where I could feature places that I wanted to go, techniques that I thought were cool, just different aspects of the industry. Sure. And that's completely how it started. It was completely from a, a fan perspective. I had no, you know, formal bartending experience or never ran a bar. I was doing it as the stuff that I thought was cool. So within a couple of months, the page was, was doing really well, was taking off. When you, now, when you say doing really well, how many followers would you say a couple months in? Because you're, uh, you're up to about 1.2 now, close to that? 1.1. 1. 1. 1. Yeah, 1.1, yeah. I mean that, yeah, yeah. 1.1 1. 1 to 1.2, somewhere so in there. And so a couple months in, how many do you have? Probably 30,000, 40,000. And you're thinking, Jesus, I'm killing it at 30,000. Yeah, well, yeah. what Which was interesting was, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I, you know, some of the people that I, that I uh, did some things with that, that kind of walked me through this process, they weren't in the spirits industry. They, you know, they had pages with different themes. And in those industries, 30, 30 40,000 wasn't big. So I wasn't thinking of myself as like, oh man, I'm really, you know, I was like, hey, it's, it's doing pretty well, it's cool. But then I started looking around at the industry and the other brands that I viewed as heritage brands, you know, stuff that like my, you know, when I was growing up, my dad was drinking, yeah. like Bombay Sapphire or something like that, right? Sure. And I'm like, 
how am I bigger than your brand already in two months? How does that? So that's when I started really looking around and going, wait a minute, these brands that I love that I, that I think of these massive brands on social, they're actually really small. And that's when the light bulb went off. And, you know, six weeks later, after I started the page, my, the company shut down the, the division I was working for. So I went home after 15 years at that job with a box and of you stuff. you thought, it's a good idea that I started <laughs> yeah, doing I this social media. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was a good idea. We were getting, you know, we were getting some, a couple bottles sent, sent to us here and there. My wife was like, I think you're going to need to actually get a real job. And I said, hey, I just want to see if I can make this thing work, do something with it. Because I'm looking around, I'm thinking that maybe, maybe I have something here. So... Yeah, and, you did, and you did, and 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 what what I think what you've really tapped into is you know everybody everybody's on Instagram, everybody's trying to figure out how do I how do I build this, how do, and you're you're not selling. It doesn't come across. You're you're what you're putting on your Instagram mm-hmm. is like it's fun to watch it, and I don't feel like I'm being sold something, which is what you're getting so much of now on. Like I've followed some people on Instagram and then I watched them go from small doing this really cool, fun thing to suddenly, uh, where am I? Am I, am I in an e-tailer right now? Like cause they're just mm-hmm. selling, swipe up, do yeah. this. And I don't see that. You don't, I don't get that on your page. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, you're just putting on great content. Yeah. And I think that's the key. I mean, content is king and, and uh, for, for anybody on social media, content is king. Just like this podcast, yeah. you know, people are going to subscribe to the podcast. This is, this is popper. You got yeah. king, queen, oh, okay. prince, well, no. popper, <laughs> podcast popper. Yeah. That's me. But the key is that you're going to get someone to subscribe because of the content, right? It's not just because someone told them to do it. At some point, they're going to listen. They're going to decide if they're going to stick around or not, if they're going to subscribe. So one of the things that, that I've always tried to do, and it's funny, early on, when brands started reaching out you know, pretty quickly about doing small campaigns and stuff, and I, the first campaign that I did, I won't mention the brand, but the first campaign that I did, I created a video, literally did it in my house. And um, I sent it to him, hey, I'm gonna post this. And this is probably at you know, 50, 60,000 followers. And I get a message back, um, hey, yeah, the brand said that they want the bottle tilted a little bit more to the left. And, and I was thinking in my head, are you kidding? You know, it, yeah. It, it, and so and once you go down that road, yeah. So I right then and there, I said, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do anything on my page that's that right now that's that's paid, that's sponsored. So literally for the last you know several years, I just post what I want to post, and that's why it has that look and feel. Later, when I when I when I had the capabilities of creating the content that I wanted to create, I was in a position where I tell the brand, hey, the reason that my page is working and maybe some of the other pages in the industry are not growing is because I know the content that resonates with my audience. So I'm okay telling your story on my page and creating content for you, but it's going to have the look and feel of other things on my page. I don't want it to scream that it's an ad because it turns people off. So right now, 95, 99% of the stuff that's on my page isn't sponsored in any way, shape or form, no affiliation with the brand. But even this, the little bit of stuff that, that is, where I'm working with a brand to help, you know, feature their product, it's done in a way that's like anything else. And that's what gets the best results. Well, all I'm saying is I better get my $17 worth that I paid you for to come out here today. That's I paid 20 bucks to park here. <laughs> it cost you money. <laughs> yes, what we're drinking with Dan Dunn, where the guests get soaked from, I'll pay you back for that someday. I just have to raise some money. I'm gonna go on, uh, do a Kickstarter. Um, so, all right, so uh, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit on yeah. this, and I do wanna come back to that, but let's, since we are here, and you, you know, you, 
when you walk into a place like this, and, mm-hmm. and, and I, again, I know you're listening out there, but it is really visually striking. When you look around this room, uh, you know, it's just a lot of wood and you can, you can feel the history of it. And, and there's a lot of soul here and there's a lot of character. Now, when you walk into places like this, are you immediately sort of going into director mode or producer mode? And are you looking around the room going, how do I shoot this or how do I... Yeah, yeah. I think the the biggest thing, and it, it happened when we walked in here. The first thing I think about is lighting, yeah. because um, you know so much of the, some of the best places in this industry are the hardest to shoot because they just yeah. don't have the right lighting. Yeah. And you know we're talking about watching videos on a on a cell phone, uh, you know, in small squares, lighting can can make or break you. So in that in that respect, yeah, I do. You know, I, I look around and I I think about some of the features that we can do some of the stuff that we can shoot, but lighting is typically the first thing I See, think I, I actually look a lot better in a low light. I know. Oh, sorry. Is I that stepped over your no? track. Is that worth it or no? That it's was kind of... Gong. I will gong you, by the way. Oh, thank you. You're not trying to be funny. I no, am. I'm not. It's, no, no, it's, no, yeah. it's more like in mine. Yeah, there you there, go. There, there, there you crash. go. Uh, anyway, get me off the soundboard. Um, okay, so you, you, the lighting is the issue. So yep. you come in the place. Like, so now let me, let's talk about a little bit. Of, let's go back, circle back. Let's circle sure. back to what I was talking about, which was the prohibition. And, and obviously you've been in a lot of bars mm-hmm. and, and you, you're familiar, you're pretty familiar with prohibition yep. and w- what went on with it. So just so everybody knows, the 18th Amendment made prohibition, basically there was a lot of religious groups. Uh, there was a thing called the Anti-Saloon League uh, that, uh, that kind of spearheaded this. And then in 19, actually what happened was in 1917 was where it kind of started, okay? Wilson, Woodrow Wilson was the president. He put a temporary wartime prohibition on alcohol to save, ostensibly to save grain, okay, for food. But that's when Congress started working on the 18th Amendment, which would become Prohibition, uh, and then the Volstead Act, which was to enforce it. Okay, so let's just say it was a horrible, horrible, horrible time from 1920 to 1933, although there was some cool shit that happened during Prohibition. The, the rise of, of uh, organized crime uh, certainly had a big thing. Al Capone, we all know Al Capone, really benefited from Prohibition. In fact, I read somewhere that he was making like $60 million a year. Back then, I don't even know what that would trade off of, of bootlegging operations. Okay, so eventually it went away, and uh, and then kind of a lot of the drinks and a lot of the things from that era kind of went away, and it was a long, long time before it came back around. And now we're sitting here, and that's what I find amazing is less than a century ago, alcohol was illegal in this country. It was a considered a scourge, and now we're sitting here, and you've got a million. One, one point one million people following you and what you're doing in the cocktail world and the craft cocktail world. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the correlations for me, you know, social media is global, yeah. and um, that's one of the things I embraced early on. You know, it, um, but some of some of my followers, you know, I, I get I get DMs a lot from people who are in countries where drinking is illegal, and. You and know, like, what, and like help, please, or something. What's that? No, <laughs> help yeah, me. yeah. You know, Come a lot of me. a lot of them will ask. Uh, honestly, a lot of them will ask, like, "Hey, can we? Um, can you post stuff about mocktails? Like how to how to make this drink, but make it non-alcoholic? Or we we love this culture. We'd love to come to, you know, the United States to learn this. You know, where where's the best place to learn it online? Or do you teach classes? But I, I find it interesting that 
you know, it's still kind of living in the shadows in, in some of these countries where it's where it's illegal. They're finding ways through social media to still be exposed to the culture and they're falling in love with it. Yeah. Do you have, a, do you have some young bucks coming at you now? You got some Instagram people trying to copy license to the still? I have no. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, you must, yeah, there must I'm, be some out there that are going, oh, oh yeah, let me well, do what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, social media can be frustrating because I, I've pulled up my phone and seen license to distill just without underscores or just spelled slightly oh, different right. the, so with my logo. Knows out there, it's license underscore T-O underscore distill. Yeah, that is the one you want to go yeah. to. So Mine, yeah. which I'm starting tomorrow, is license underscore number two <laughs> underscore distill. Yeah, that's There'll already. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's taken. I'm sure it's taken. <laughs> how, do I, how do I get my followers up? Tell me. Let's say, let's say I'm an aspiring I'm a young kid, as you can tell, looking yeah. at me. So I'm out here. I'm doing my little podcast. I got my at the imbiber Instagram. Give me some. Give me. Give me your tips. How do I? How do I get mine up? How okay. do I get my numbers up? How do so, I get it up, Jabin? Tell me. So I'm going to treat you the way I would treat any brand that was asking me that question. Okay. Um, tell me to go to hell. No, it's okay. uh, no, it's look at the content. Okay. And consider the audience that you're going for. Think like the consumer. I mean, the whole reason that License to Distill worked is because I wasn't thinking like the traditional brands and the marketing teams that are that that, that are working for them. Um, I'm thinking about it from on the other side of the bar, and I'm coming from a perspective of what would I like to see. If if I'm going to follow a page brand, it's got to be worth that follow. I mean, our feeds are filled with friends, with family. Brands that we like. Side boob, tattoo girl. That's this is all mine. I have like that is I yours. follow like tattoo girl. Let's you be clear. don't follow this. No, here's what I, I follow. I don't follow side boob. I don't. Full on boob. I go. No, uh, I follow. I, I follow you. Yes. I follow people in the industry. Yeah. I follow a few famous people. Yeah. Because you're friends with them. Friends with them, yeah, of yeah. course, yeah. And then, uh, and that's and that's kind of it for me. But, yeah. but then again, I'm not necessarily the demographic. Yeah, but but I think when you, when you look at your page, it definitely has a very personal feel, which I think is great. Yeah. But I would say that for the most part, people are going to follow you because they've met you. Okay. There's already a, there's a personal connection. I have to meet more people. If you're looking, if oh. you're looking to follow people that haven't met you, I would say content needs to appeal to that person outside of just knowing. Dan and caring about Dan's life. In other words, that whole opening um, bit that you did about, you know, different things that you're trying, that's something that could be valuable to an audience because regardless of who Dan is and what Dan does for fun or who he hangs out with, his celeb buddies. You mean so shoot some video of me going, oh, this is, this is Bishop's finger beer. Maybe not that, <laughs> that part. Might, there was a beer called Bishop's yeah. Finger Beer. But, but, but you no, said, the, I know what you're the, saying. The, so the reviews yeah, that you're okay, saying, yeah. th- those are valuable. And I know you do some of that on your stories. Okay. But I, I think that it, there needs to be, one of, the, one of the things that I try to stress to brands is that uh, getting a follower is not easy. No. I mean, it, 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 seems, it seems like basic, but after a while, people look at their feeds, they're cluttered. And they um, start getting rid of people. And they start getting rid of people. You know, I lose followers every time I post. I mean, just it, that's what happens. If and you so, post anything about me, you might lose all of them. Yeah, <laughs> James gonna be like, "What the hell? I had that down to five hundred. You 000. may have to edit this and say he had one point one million. He had one point one million, <laughs> and, and then, he, then was, he came on this show. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So uh, my, you know, my my whole thing with 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 brands is it's going to take more than someone telling you to follow them. You take a look at some of the celeb backed brands. Yeah. For like, for instance, like Virginia Black Whiskey. 
Drake has 50 something million followers. Yeah. He's talking about that whiskey all the time. He's on stage at the Grammys holding up with his whole crew. He's talking about on his page, posting the very funny, clever, you know, ads with his father. Virginia Black's got 67,000 followers. That's crazy. Why is that? That's, because and this he, is, and this is the mistake. Who's, I, I, that's the question I would, I, I think I posed it to you before is, so on my Instagram, there's tons of pictures of me with like some famous people that I know and things like yeah. that. And I'm like, why aren't people going crazy for that? And it's, yeah. and that's it. It's what you're doing is you're giving them something. Who cares about pictures of me and, and Jay-Z? There are no yeah, pictures if, of me. If there I, is somewhere on my account. Look for it. <laughs> um, yeah, if I already am a... Oh, by the way, we, hold on. I don't want to interrupt you here, but we, we, uh, we do have Dorian Bay just walked out here with a drink for us. And Dorian, do you mind telling us into that microphone? By the way, hello. How are you, man? How are you? Get in there closer. So, uh, there we go. Yeah, so right here we got uh, an old-fashioned on tap. Uh, what we do is we uh, we brew our own ginger you beer. You mean this, Moscow yeah. Mule. I mean, uh, yes, the Moscow Mule. Uh, we brew our own ginger beer. Uh, we blend that with some fresh-squeezed lime juice and rake of vodka. And then we force carbonate the entire um, the entire batch. Now, when you keep it on tap, is there a is there a, a, a expiration date on that? So How yeah, there is an expiration date. Um, it's good for two weeks. Uh, the good thing is that uh, the there is when we put it in, it's fresh. But the ginger beer, uh, the more the more it ferments, the better it gets. So you have kind of like a like a curve of how the cocktail will taste. So it'll get better for the first week, and then it'll start declining in, in flavor. How long has this one been going? Uh, this one this one was made yesterday, so it's it's fresh. So it's like seven on the way to being a ten. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. So he's trying to hedge his bets like right that. now. He's like, All right, yeah. if it's not the best Moscow meal you ever had, it's because I made it yesterday. Yeah, you should come back in a <laughs> week. Come back here and do the great. show in six days, and you'll be like, God damn. Let me try <laughs> oh, that. That's really good. Dorian, thank you, man. Appreciate Dorian, it. And, and Dorian you. Bay, by the way, if you get you got to come in here. you got to come yeah. in and see this place. Just don't come in on, like, Saturday night because Dorian will be like, well, what? <laughs> Dan Dunn sent me. What? Fuck him. I'm just, there's, there's, like, seven deep here on the weekends. Like, it's, it's the places. People like this place. Like, it's crowded. Yeah. What do you think of this? What do you think of this Moscow Mule? It's really good. By the way, so you, I'm thinking about your journey from, from being at that bar in San Diego to now. Your, your appreciation, your understanding of cocktails has got to be it's night and day, right? How you've evolved in terms of yeah. your, your knowledge about this stuff. Yeah, it it has, but I still I still view myself as that same you know fan of uh, of the industry, fan of the cocktails. What these bartenders create and what they put together is incredible, and it's well above my my skill level as a bartender. So, I think one mistake that we can make sometimes in this industry, you see a lot of criticism of people on social media you know, hey, I can do it better. I can, you know, why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it that way? My page is zero of that. It is, hey, this is a unique, different way of doing it. You know, I'm a fan of it. I know what I can do and what I can't do. Yeah. And I know I can't make that Moscow Mule like he, like, like well, he you did, can make a right? video of him making yeah, that but, Moscow and, Mule. <laughs> and, I can, and I can feature that and I can tell people to, to come over here because this is a different, this is, this is as I'm drinking this, yeah. the most unique way of making a Moscow Mule. I've never had one like this. Yeah. So as I sit here today, this is a unique take on a cocktail that, I mean, how many people are serving Moscow meals? No. Right? I mean, it's, and, and well, especially but now it's summertime. So it is, that's a great summer drink. Absolutely. I mean, such a great, so refreshing. And, uh, but you're right. I mean, especially how many people are doing it on tap. 
Not yeah, many. that's the thing. Yeah. And and one of the things I love, yes, there is a place for the you know twelve ingredient cocktails. Um, you know, and 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 doing different takes on uh, on cocktails that that will never be achieved at home. You know, for the average person. But one of the things that that I really like is if you look at what we're drinking right now, um, Sazerac Old Fashioned Moscow Mule. These are classic cocktails, but they taste fantastic. They they're putting their own spin on it. That to me is where we can help the kind of fringe person in this industry that's just kind of getting an introduction into it go from the moscow mule that they'd probably get at you know tgi fridays to a moscow mule that tastes like this that will blow their mind like by the way you bring up tgi fridays and and this is this is something i've talked about on the air i've talked about and written about it too is there's a downside to the proliferation of these bars is that there are tons of bars that are going to willing to charge you $18 $18 for a Moscow Mule or an Old Fashioned. I'm not saying that's what they do here. But what I'm saying is there's not a ton of bars that have the quality of, of bartender like a Dorian Bay and the, guy, the guys that Louie hires here at Townhouse and some of the other places around town. There's a lot of quote-unquote craft cocktail bars that are crap cocktail bars. Like I go in and, and they're mm-hmm. making a drink and I'm like, how did, how did you make this? What was the ratio here? And I'm telling them what ratio should be. And I'm like, and how much am I giving you for this again? Nineteen dollars? The hell out of here. So you got to be careful out there when you're when you're out finding places to go. Uh, just because they're charging you an yeah. arm and a leg doesn't mean you're going to get a great drink. So no, and that's the thing. And I I, I think that uh, you know it's how these cocktails are done at bars that help help me as a consumer gauge how great the bar is. Yeah. You know if you can. If you can blow my mind with an old fashioned when I've probably had hundreds of old fashions, maybe a thousand old fashions yeah. in my life, if you can make me go, oh, wow, that feels unique, that feels different, then you've won. I'm, I'm in. I think that's awesome. Well, I think we've all won here. And with that, Javen, stick around for this. I'm going to get to a segment, if you don't mind indulging me for a minute, that we do on the show, and it's called What's Driving Me to Drink? It's driving me to drink. So normally I... Uh, I uh, use this time to rant about something that's bothering me, but this time what's driving me to drink is something good, and uh, and I want to tell you about it. So Townhouse is a great spot. We've established that, and just know that if you venture in here on the weekends at night after dark and you were born prior to the Clinton administration, it's a little bit of a millennial kiddie pool, and that's good. Young kids out having fun. I say this as an old guy, right? You know. So, But if you're old G like me, if you're old G, want to come in come in during the afternoon or at happy hour things aren't that crazy you really get to really take in the atmosphere here and enjoy it and hopefully george charnecki will be here george is uh, a bartender i have met bartenders in my life who can spin a yarn but george is the aesop of the alehouse the poet laureate of liquor Guy's been tending bar in Venice for almost 50 years, and he's been here for half of that time at the townhouse. Okay, so I, George, I hope I don't do him wrong by this, but I got to tell this story that George has told me, and he's told countless others, and it's one of the best bartending stories I've ever heard. So here we go. You ready for this, Jabin? I'm ready. Okay, so I said George started here in the 1990s, and the owner back then was a tough old son of a bitch named Frank Bennett. Frank was a Korean War vet from Iowa, and he did not suffer fools. He'd had this joint since the 1960s. So on George's first day, Frank tosses a Moringa keys and says, here, run the damn place. And George has been here ever since. One thing about Frank, though, he was a hoarder. The shelves behind the bar were cluttered with all kinds of crap, oxidized iron, driftwood, old coffee cans, you name it. 
And when George teased him about it, he'd just say, one man's trash is another man's treasure. One day, George started cleaning the place up. And he cleared a bunch of crap off the shelves and was about to toss it all, and Frank came in. And when he saw George was doing, he, he just blew a gasket. Like, don't clean this place. They're collector's items, goddammit. From now on, nothing gets thrown out unless I say so. This stuff might look like trash to you, but to me, it's all treasures, especially this. And he points to this weird little bowling trophy, okay? And the placard on the bowling trophy said, high score, three games, Ambrose Shannon. And Frank says, that's Ambrose Shannon's trophy, and it's never to be touched, ever. So George, who's Ambrose Shannon? And Frank proceeds to tell him this story about this little trophy. So it was the early 1960s, and Ambrose Shannon was this Irishman, a bit of a loner, a regular here at the townhouse. He lived in a tiny uh, room in a boarding house right around the corner on Market Street. And this is back when Venice was tough. That boarding house that he lived in is now Snapchat's headquarters today, okay? So Frank always liked Ambrose Shannon. He was a good guy, reliable, minded at his own business, paid his tap, okay? So one night, Ambrose comes in all excited. And this was unusual for him. Again, the guy's a loner. And he'd had a big night in his bowling league. He bowled over 700 over three games. And he won a trophy for it. It was his little trophy, incredibly proud of it. Frank offers to display it behind the bar so everyone could see it. And that's where it went, and that's where it stayed. A couple of years later, in 1966, Frank and his wife Annie were at the townhouse with some friends. The only other people in the bar were the bartender and Ambrose Shannon, who was perched on a stool near the front entrance. So in the area, there was a pimp who ran hookers around here. And apparently that day, one of his women had taken off on him. And she used to hang out here in her off hours, so he figured this is where she'd be. So he storms into the place, angry as hell, and he, bang, fires a bullet into the ceiling with his 38. That bullet right out there in the fort where we came in, the foyer. Now, someone pops a cap indoors like that. It's, it's loud, okay? And Ambrose Shannon jumps up and says, what the hell? And this seemed to piss the pimp off because he walked up to Shannon, pointed a 38 at him, and shot him right between the eyes point blank for no reason and it turns out the woman he was looking for was never even in the bar that day frank says he's never seen anything like it okay so after it's done it seemed like the pimp must have come out of some trance he knew there was no way to beat this rap he walks outside sets the gun on the sidewalk and waits for the cops to take him in spent the rest of his life in san quentin so that was the last night ambrose shannon came into the townhouse but his bowling trophy never left and that's a pretty decent story on its own, wouldn't you say, Jabin? But there's more. There's more. About 10 years after he told George that story, Frank passed away. And what he did, his son Dan took over. And Dan was not the kind of guy who had any interest in owning a bar. He was an ex-cop, a teetotaler, didn't drink. Uh, and he looked down on people who did drink. A few days after Dan took over the place, George got a call from one of the bartenders saying Dan had a dumpster outside and was throwing everything out all the stuff that his hoarder father had accumulated over the decades. They had a bad relationship, Dan and Frank, and, I, and George figured this was Dan's way of finally showing the old man up, okay? So George heads straight over here, and when Dan takes a break, George climbs into the dumpster to salvage whatever he could. And he managed to save a bunch of things, including Ambrose Shannon's bowling trophy. And he put it all in boxes, and he hid them in a storage room in the basement right down here where we are now. So when Louis Ryan bought the townhouse in 2008, he wanted to purge all the clutter, 
and he asked George to get rid of everything but the important stuff. And George hated to do it, but he finally ended up tossing out most of Frank's treasures. But for some reason, he couldn't bring himself to get rid of that bowling trophy. So it stayed in that box in the basement storage room. About three years later, 2011, right around the time you were in that bar in San Diego, it's a rainy night here in Venice. George is behind the bar, and in walks this tall Irish guy. Sits down, orders a drink, says his name's Patrick. Then he says he's looking for any information he can find about a guy who was killed in Venice back in the 60s, shot in a bar. Guy was his favorite uncle. But it seems he was also the black sheep of the family, and not much information was available about how he died. All Patrick knew was his uncle had been murdered and that it had happened in an old saloon somewhere in Venice. So George is blown away, and he says, you're not talking about Ambrose Shannon, are you? The guy says, yeah. You know him? So George tells him the story that Frank told him about how his uncle Ambrose was killed. And when George was done, he went down and dug out that old bowling trophy from the storage room. High score, three games, Ambrose Shannon. Patrick didn't even know what to say. And I mean, this was like he found the answer to a mystery his family had been searching, he'd been searching for, certainly for years. And he asked if he could take the trophy. George said, of course. Then he asked George if he would write this story down, and George did that too. And about a year later, Patrick came in with a glass display case containing the only picture he had of his uncle, Ambrose, along with that bowling trophy and the story that George had written, tied up in a little bow. And he told George he was on his way to a Shannon family reunion in Ireland, and he was going to take that display case with him. And about a month after that, George got a postcard from Ireland. The back was signed by 23 grateful Shannons. As a wise man once told him, one man's trash really is another man's treasure. What do you think of that? Wow. <laughs> hey. <laughs> wow. So with that, I think that's probably good. I think we should have a little uh, cheers here to, yeah. to Ambrose Shannon, to George, to Louis Ryan, to Dorian Bay, and of course to you, Jabin. And uh, let's tell people where to find you now on the, uh, on the Instagram. Licensed to Distill on Instagram. And uh, yeah, reach out, DM, follow. Uh, I'm, I'm available. I, I, I try to answer all the messages just like you do. And uh, hopefully you uh, stick around, see something you like, follow it. That's it, man. You got to follow that account. And uh, we're going to be back uh, next week. By the way, next week, so you know, uh, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell on the show. Yes, the Kurt Russell on this very show next week. Until then, this is Dan Dunn reminding you that wondering whether the glass is half full or half empty is missing the point. Because the glass is refillable.